My name is Ian Rowlands. And I'm Colin Williams. And welcome to Beneath the Stream, a podcast about the human experience in the non-human world. And um, Colin, are you leaning against a gravestone? As it happens, I am. The gravestone of one Thomas Peck. So you you find us in Cambridge uh, at the Mill Road Cemetery. (laughs) And uh, leaving no cliche unturned, this is our opportunity to do a podcast about fear. The things we want to explore about fear, I thought, were um, is fear or describe just another sense, like like sound or scent. Um, maybe a bit about fear and its evolutionary beginnings, how it relates, how we how we dealt with fear in our evolution as humans, uh, how fear heightens our senses and changes our experience of the non-human world, and how our presence of fear changes our view of a place. Um, I wanted to begin with the fear of being eaten. Okay. <laughs> and, and today's mystery object, Colin, I'm now placing in your hands. Perhaps you'd like to describe it. Ah, okay. So what, what we have here is clearly... Um, <clears throat> it's a cast of an animal footprint. Really big. And I think the first time I saw one of these, I, I wondered whether it was the cast of a Bigfoot. Um, because it clearly has sort of separate toes but in this particular cast it's it's got um five enormous claws and i'm i'm going to take a wild guess ian and say that this is the cast of a footprint of a grizzly bear it is indeed yeah Yeah. very very good let's talk about wild animals and the things that might eat us um because most wild animals they're curious about you or go out of the way to avoid you i mean a few i've encountered like uh cougars are a real danger and might opportunistically attack you but it's bears that I wanted to talk about because bears are fascinating they're always doing something they're sort of mercurial they're in the landscape but can suddenly appear when you don't expect to see one and somehow melt for such a large animal melt into the background and you can unexpectedly bump into them appear from nowhere but I wanted to talk about a grizzly bear encounter I had in Yellowstone, in fact, in uh, uh, Wyoming, North America. Grizzly bears will eat absolutely anything. Uh, and one of those favorite facts of mine, you can't outrun a grizzly bear. Uh, they can run faster than a galloping horse. So it's, it's a predator. It will eat you. And as with polar bear, that view humans as nothing more than a vertical seal most of the time. You are food. I think for a grizzly bear, you, you could be food, and, and certainly... Uh, That's my experience of them. I was uh, walking along um, a river in the Hayden Valley and uh, could see a bison in the middle of the river limping and standing in the water and looking into the forest with a look of alarm on its face. And and I did exactly what you shouldn't do, which is got out of the vehicle and walked into the forest. (laughs) (laughs) I love where this is going. Um... I should say, you, you still have all of your limbs. I'm, I'm mostly intact, some okay. people might say. Um, and um, so I walked into the forest because I really wanted to see, I had this instinct that, that something was, was scaring this bison and it was going to be a grizzly bear or a wolf. And, and walking into the forest is clearly a reckless thing to do, but I, I thought, I'm a, uh, I'm a forest man, I'm a man of the wilderness. I will be alert and aware and, and, and work out what's in there. Once I entered the trees... And the river was out of sight, but I could hear the river. It, it suddenly turned into a different prospect, where I suddenly realised the foolhardy nature of what I was doing. I was in the forest, 
there was probably a predator around and I couldn't see anything. Um, and it was amazing how heightened my senses became. And suddenly, you know, I was really conscious of every footstep I took and whether it cracked a twig or something like that. I could smell an animal smell in the forest that smelled like bears. And, uh, and my ears were heightened for any sound of it. I was, I was smelling the air, listening. I was walking and trying to keep my back to trees so nothing could sneak up on me from behind. And I realized how much, with hindsight, how much of that fear of the bear attack um, was in my head. So I never did see the bear. I edged my way into the forest, edged my way out again very fearfully. It was an almost supernatural experience to walk in there, be heightened in so many ways to what was around me, and never actually see anything. Now I've seen plenty of grizzly bears subsequently, but that, that is one of the most profound encounters I remember because I had an absolute fear I was gonna be eaten. So I, I, I and guess, yet, and yet there was no, um, there was no evidence of that. You didn't, you didn't see the thing that you were afraid of. No, and in a way, that's a great cue, I think, for this discussion today, as we sit on the gravestone. It's like there's, there's no evidence that most of the things that frighten us are really going to do us harm. That's the, that's the kickoff, really, for this. Is, is, is why do we find certain things fearful when they don't necessarily really pose us a great deal of harm and I'm really excited to discuss this because um, I also want to add in there sort of how these little um, experiences like the one you had or these fears that we carry around as human beings affect our perception of our place as well and um, uh, uh, and how they affect our view of a landscape it's interesting that because I wanted to ask you what places you find fearful with the kickoff that for many people the wild wood yeah is a is historically a place of fear and is still a place of fear for essentially urban creatures that most humans are but actually as i thought about what we were going to talk about today i thought about the some of the examples i could think of um where that that otherwise innocuous or pastoral um sort of bucolic feeling that you might get walking into a sort of bosky glade with the sun coming through the leaves and the, the birds are tweeting uh, and all those things. I think about the stories of Arthur Macken, um, the sort of sort of Edwardian horror writer. Um, he set some of his stories in woods where, where dark things happen um, and dark things happen in relation to the nature uh, around them as well. I think about folk songs um, there's a folk song, a child ballad called The Cruel Mother um, and the, the green wood in that song becomes more than just a green wood it, it becomes a place where a mother murders her newborn twins and while she's, years later while she's bucolically walking through the wood enjoying the environment she, she's, she encounters the ghosts of her children that she murdered so suddenly this this lovely green forest becomes something a lot darker. Hmm. And I was really, uh, there's so many thoughts go through here when you're really, the tangents that you could go off on there. Uh, thinking how much that our fear of the wild wood is a European or Western construct 
Uh, and maybe arguably it comes from you know medieval Europe where mm. it was a, a fearful place both from um, creatures that might eat you but the, the ungodly creatures that might eat you separating it feels to me like it was the beginning of the separation of humans from the non-human world in mm. a more profound sense suddenly that uh, the wildwood represented um, the work of the devil the work of the other yeah and, and I think you can I think that applies to other landscapes as well. Um, as I say, we're, we're, we're in Cambridge, sort of in, in the heart of the Fens, and you, you know it's a place that I've written about a lot because I, I, I was raised uh, in, in the Fens, and it is a place that for many people holds a sort of bleakness and a darkness. It, it's flat, which some people find difficult to deal with. Look, looking back into history, it was, it was a big place of reeds and mirrors and silted islands um, there, there's a quote I'd like to read if possible it's from the sort of 11th 12th century book um, written by a monk called Felix about the life of St Guflac who set up home on the island of Crowland in Cambridgeshire and he said that when Guflac was finding a place for his hermitage quote there was a na- man named Tatooine who said that he knew a place so obscure, which oft-times men had attempted to inhabit, but no man could do it, on account of the manifold horrors and fears and the loneliness of the wide wilderness, so that no man could endure it and everyone had fled from it. <laughs> That's brilliant. And, and, and so these places have the potential to fill us with fear. Anything that's unknown, anything that we can't cross or easily tame um, has this potential this element of fear and I'm as we talk I'll be really interested to explore that a little bit more. Well I, I salute you for the most obscure erudite quotes possible <laughs> Colin and I, I had one of my own but I feel like I don't want to use it now because it's, <laughs> it's like it's like quote top trumps really I feel like you've beaten me before I even lay my cards down but um, the writer Malcolm Sinclair said you turn the outdoors into something more savage than you are and you know something terrible is going to happen. Yeah. And, and that's part of the human imagination yeah. in the non-human world isn't yeah. that? Yeah. yeah. And yeah, and I think that that, you know, don't, didn't want to get stuck on the fence, but I think it's a good example of the landscape. Some people might feel the same about moorland. But there are many, of course, yeah. you know, the, the lost yeah. on the moors, yeah. the, the sort of uh, American werewolf in London. Stay keep off, off the moors, keep off the moors. <laughs> stay on the road. <laughs> yeah, it, it has that, that feel to it. Yeah. I, I was interested, I was exploring because I, um, I have a conflict in myself about the, this a deep-rooted cultural fear of the wild wood. I actually feel very comfortable in the wildwood, and I started to explore myself what makes me frightened in the forest. And I realised it's probably if I encountered something human or almost human or other, you know, stumbling across. You're in the forest and stumble across the the sacrificial stone, or you or you stumble across the um, the woven stick pentangle from Blair Witch Project. Is <laughs> that that's the point at which it departs from? It, it's it's yeah. it's sort of human, but not human mm. and and in a way there is a fear of being eaten yeah maybe there isn't in the fence but there's a fear of being eaten but it far more terrifying is the idea of being taken our, our imagination turns it into something else and it's interesting because i watched the witch robert eggers the witch just recently and, mm. and was struck by the fear is pivotal around the the weird the uncanny the human not human yeah in the wild wood yes <laughs> Yeah, and the symbolism that goes with that, and and the same might be true for say, oh, I don't know. I was thinking about M Night Shyamalan's The Village. Yes, um, 
maybe even Tolkien's Fangorn from yeah. the Two Towers. Yeah. I don't and, know. And, and all of those deal with a pushing back of a boundary, don't they? Yeah. They deal with life, uh, an experience in a new place, in a new world, that has to somehow be tamed and understood. Now, we could keep pushing on that boundary, but I wanted almost to draw us back to um, what fear is, mm. I suppose. And that's such a hard thing to define, but is fear just uh, another sense like uh, like sound or smell in evolutionary terms there are good reasons for us listening to our fears and developing fears so is it a by is it you know I, I suppose i'm going back to my original question which is just another sense and we just hardwired to process fear in some way the fear of something that could harm us and some people have had have a terrible fear of snakes or spiders um, or sharks or crocodiles you, and you think what well, fair enough that <laughs> so so you should be scared of those things because surely within our evolution there's something about the movement of a snake on the ground that immediately gives us reason to pause and be careful so the author Stephen King published a list of his personal terrors in 1973 and it seemed to right. me entirely to chime with what you just said about phobias and evolutionary developed fears that made complete sense for humans to avoid these things that were going to be damaging and I think the list in a way they were kind of they were evolved fears rather than something that a 21st century inhabitant of Maine <laughs> ought to necessarily fear which you think would be you know, the things in Maine might be you know a murderer or bears or things but see how much this chimes so here's the 10 things okay right. number one fear of the dark okay you don't have to comment on all these but place them in your mind in terms of why evolutionary terms we would fear those things I like this one number two fear of squishy things <laughs> number three fear of deformity hmm Number four, fear of snakes, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, five, fear of rats. Six, fear of closed-in spaces, which is my personal one. Uh, number seven, fear of insects, especially f spiders, flies, and beetles. Right. Uh, number eight, fear of death. Number nine, fear of others. Uh, he kind of called it paranoia, really, but it, whether that's rational yeah. or not. And ten, fear for on behalf of someone else. Right. So that was his ten, and I, they seem to me to have deep roots in, yeah. in in human needs to survive. Yeah, I think we'd recognise all of those things, wouldn't we? I mean, squishy things can be, you know, interpreted in a, a number of different ways. But yeah, the thing that is not pleasant to the touch, or the thing that is you can't identify it, um, and 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 all those news stories that you see of sea monsters being washed up on beaches. Uh, always end up being a decomposing whale, uh, a, a huge lion's mane jellyfish, or, or something like that, or a bit of a giant squid um, that's washed up. But the, people's immediate reaction is sea monster. I, I found a sea monster on Yarmouth Beach, um, where whereas really, you know, it's just a large jellyfish. It was interesting because I went through Stephen King's list, and I was and and because you mentioned the kind of sea monster or the the squishy dead thing or whatever and um i realized there were two there were two phobias i could recognize for myself and, and actually generally i'm quite phobia free mm. probably frightened of plenty of things but generally not and um the trapped underground one the whole 
potholing, spelunking thing, confined spaces, that 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 is a terror. I'm curious to know where it comes from. I never found myself in that situation, but the, it gives me the shivers just thinking about it. And deep ocean and barely perceived creatures below me in the blue depths. Yeah. The things that you can't see. Rats is mine. <laughs> in fact, I think the biography on my website, the, the last word is that I am afraid of rats. It wanted to lead me back to that thing of fear heightening our senses and how that changes our experience of the non-human world. So have you got any ex- anything that relates to that? Um, y- yeah. I think, I think one of the most fantastic writers on this at the moment is a man called Julian Hoffman. Um, and seek out his work okay. b- because he, he writes very precise essays about th- things like the thing we're talking about now. And in Zoomorphic, he wrote about an encounter with a bear. So can we, let's, let's go back to bears for a minute. So they're, they're, they're a bit recurring here. Um, where in, in the Presbo Mountains, where he lives in Greece, um, and he talks about... Um, he, he dwells on the senses that those encounters heighten. And he talks about... Um, if it, I, I may be misquoted slightly, but he, he, he talks about everything being elevated in, in, into one plane where only he and the bear remain. Hmm. All senses come together in this one place where it's just him and the animal and everything else is excluded. And there's some, re- some really interesting work being done on something called the weapon focus effect where people that go through um, traumas like being there when there's a a bank robbery ah, right. or, or someone yeah. a, a mugger waving a knife at them mm. so really traumatic experiences that they struggle to remember what the assailant was wearing um, who the other people there what what they were doing where they were going on the and what they focus down on is the details of the weapon mm. so they can they, they know the color of the knife or how long it was or, or what type yeah. it was the phrase that came to mind and i i, I I jotted this down before the podcast. It just came to me. It's the um, the second witch in Shakespeare's Macbeth, which was later used as uh, the title of the novel by Agatha Christie. But I came across it in Ray Bradbury's brilliant novel, Something Wicked This Way Comes, which I, I read as a child and still adore. And uh, so the, the quote from the second witch is, by the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. And it, it's like that, that, that feeling in your body something fearful menacing threatening yeah. is coming it's uh, an otherworldly sense I suppose and I I I think there's something in that um, there's something in the numinous um, this 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 word that describes it originally it meant fear of um, the presence of some sort of deity so, so something all-powerful mm-hmm. and omnipotent but over time we've broadened its meaning to anything that we can't quite put our finger on anything that we can't see or describe we don't know why we're afraid but we are and and there's a, there's there's a great example of that if, if we're not too proud to seek it there in the wind in the willows where Kenneth, Kenneth Graham. Yeah, there's a chapter in there called Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Right. About them 
it, it's 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 the psychedelic chapter of Wind in the Willows, um, where they. I'm always fond of a bit of psychedelic, well, Colin, as it, you know. Where would Pink Floyd get their album names <laughs> if it wasn't from the Wind in the Willows? But go on, um, sorry, I interrupted. Um, it, there's a bit where the Moley and Ratty are are about to encounter the god Pan. Mm. And there's there's a bit in there, and I, I'm going to misquote it because I can't remember it word for word. But I, I think I think Ratty asked Moley all the other way around, "Are you afraid?" Um, uh, and and the answer is, uh, kind of. I am, but I'm also not at the same time. I, I so want to experience this, but I'm so afraid to experience it. And I think that numinosity, there's something in that that goes for a lot of the things we've talked about so far, which is you know, close encounters with animals that can do us harm, um, encounters with landscapes that we don't comprehend or understand or, or we find forbidding in some way, um, and in, encounters with the things which we rationally or irrationally fear. I think there's something about the numinous in, in all of that. Mm. It, it's it's interesting because we didn't you know rehearse this. I didn't know you were going to quote that chapter from Wind in the Willows, the, the panic chapter, mm, mm. Um, because it made a big impression on me as a child. Mm. Uh, maybe it's that my sense of the world being um, uh, to use a kind of trite term, magical. There was more t- more to it than than what was on the surface, and and that the god Pan deities that we create or are around us or spirit. Why does that? I was going to say supernatural in its real sense of the phrase. It's sort of beyond nature. Why does that um, evoke fear in us? That's a big question, Ian. Well, I guess, you know, I'm a subscriber to that view in, in Hamlet, you know, that kind of, there are more things in her and earth ratio than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Mm. You know, it's, it's like a, we're only limited by our imagination of what's, what's really yeah. possible. Yeah what could be out there so uh, anyway just to, just to wrap that up then i wondered whether you had any um supernatural fears or, or even experiences of fear that were hard for you to define explain put a scientific label on yeah i read an article a guardian article recently by the by robert mcfarlane right um, and he, in his book, The Old Ways, he recounts a couple of things that he, um, all, all he did was just write those things, those experiences he had. He had an odd experience at a place called Chanctonbury Ring in, uh, on the South Downs, um, where he was sleeping uh, overnight there. And he just relates it without narrative or interpretation and just puts it out there. And I... I can relate an experience that I'm going to just put out there mm-hmm. without interpretation, without any of my prejudices attached to it. Um, there's a place that I go to, um, I guess almost once a year, it's, it's a sort of pilgrimage, it's a place nearby where my grandfather was born and raised in the Black Mountains on, on the border of Herefordshire and Wales. And if you drive uh, sort of south out of Hayon Wye, there you you pass over the sort of very high you pass through some sort of rise up through some pine forests out onto the moorland tops of the black mountains it's a place called the gospel pass and if you uh, uh, and you know you read something on the black hill by bruce chatwin it's set in that very place and if you carry on over the gospel pass that takes you then down into the sort of 
ancient oak wooded valley where there's there's a river in the in the valley bottom there steep valley sides on on either side and there's a little place there called Cap Levin um, um, and I, I've been there many many times it's got a tiny church there um, down in Cap Levin and just across the river another slightly less old um, chapel and so these two places of worship either side of this tumbling river and I was once there on on my own and I was enjoying the environment I was listening to the birds there were there were there were red starts calling from the trees um, I could hear a dipper um, also calling from from the sort of rocks in in the tumbling river there and without warning um, a, a sadness and a darkness crept into me in that place whatever it was it watched me this this emotion this feeling this something unseen I felt it watching me from the cracks in the dry stone walls I felt it watching me from the mossy stones on the banks of the river from the windows of the chapel um, from the gaps in the roof tiles from under the bridge wherever it was I felt something and I make no comment on what it was or what it was that made me feel that way something was there and I do not know what it was I am not given to fanciful thoughts um, I don't believe I conjured it I'm going to leave it there. Is it by taking yourself to that place of tranquility that whatever that came in, whatever that was, and we won't try and explain it, you were able to perceive it? And and is, is it that... Um, it, it, in a way that I wouldn't have done had I not been on my own in that place. Yeah. Yeah. So that people have these... Exp if these are experiences that we humans can dwell amongst we need to take ourselves to the place of solitude or wilderness or silence or uh, I was going to say meditation I don't mean that in its literal sense but I mean it's sort of um, a blank contemplation I suppose but it sounds like a really powerful thing I mean I you know I, I, in the last podcast we were discussing you being very emotional I don't think of you as an emotional person but clearly just the recollection of that is bringing something back in you I can see it in your face and uh... Ian I think we should go and meet someone for whom fear is their stock in trade I have arranged for us to meet someone and so let's descend further into Cambridge and see if we can find him I can't wait I'm Robert Lloyd Parry, and um, I, well, I describe myself as a performance storyteller, um, and that means that um, for half the year, kind of the, when it's dark in the evenings, I, I travel the country um, performing classic genre fiction, um, literary genre fiction, often from the Edwardian, late Victorian period. Uh, and I specialise 
almost exclusively, in fact, in the, the work of M.R. James, Montague Rhodes James, the, the father of the English ghost story. And, and we, we, we have to confess, we, we love your work, Robert. We've, we've, we've seen you perform on numerous occasions and we're big devotees of M.R. James. And we wanted to make sure we discussed M.R. James today because I think there's some particular themes in his writing that lend itself to the topic of fear that we're discussing because we're, we've been really interested in how fear enhances our experience in the natural world and it, it enhances our experience of a landscape, whatever that landscape might be. M.R. James, some of M.R. James stories are very linked to their setting and, and some of the terror and fear associated with them are, are linked to their landscape. Is that fair to say? Well, I, I think certainly it's absolutely fair to say that place and setting and surroundings are incredibly important in, in I think, all of M.R. James's stories. And, you know, he, he, he said as much himself. Um, whether those places always are the, the kind of the, the trigger for fear or whether they change under the kind of the, through the filter of fear, I, I'm not entirely sure about that. Thinking about it, you know, uh, he, he was a man of East Anglia. He, you know, he's quite a proud son of Suffolk, I think. Um, he lived, you know, he's, he's, he, was, he was brought up near Bury St Edmunds on the edge of the Bricklands, which is a very kind of what you'd describe rather lazily perhaps as an atmospheric place. It's got the, these curled old pines, this flat, sandy fields, field after field, and then, you know, copses of um, firs and so on. The setting is vital, and, and, and M.R. James stories often start off with um, what to some people is very slow, kind of few paragraphs, intricately describing the setting um, into which the horrors that he will introduce much later on in the story will, will intrude. But it's not always the setting you might expect from the... Um, I was thinking about a warning to the curious, you see, which is set, brilliantly set. I mean, brilliant. the town of Oldborough is superbly evoked in the opening paragraph where you get M.R. James's childhood memories of the place. And um, a lot of people today will probably know A Warning to the Curious from the excellent BBC film that was made in the, the 1970s, I think, um, where it's, it's kind of filmed in this, filmed in Norfolk, I think, kind of on this very desolate stretch of the coast. Um, and maybe it's the kind of the period it was filmed in, the 70s, but um, it kind of has this weirdly bleached colour. Bleached isn't quite the word, but the, the colour is not quite like anything else. And you, you, what it is kind of washed out. And you get a very kind of grim, kind of supernatural, glowing, grimly glowing kind of feel from the very beginning of that film. Now, you don't get that in the story. The opening of the story presents us with a really very pleasant um, seaside town seen through the eyes of a child with the church bells ringing and the family walking up the hill and he remembers beautiful cottages and the long seafront and stuff like that and then he, he, mentioned, he says that there are the dikes and the marshes that remind him of the great expectations so you get a little bit of the chill note there but apart from that it's, 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 this isn't to put down that, that, that film at all because I think it's a brilliant film and it's, its setting is one of the, the great things that makes it but Emerald Jones is a bit more subtle in that so the, the real horror that you get at the end of that story, and it is perhaps his most horrific story, his most violently horrid story by the end, um, is not kind of, I, I don't think it really is kind of um, signaled at the beginning. I think the fact that he sets these supernatural horrors, supernatural evil, and they're always supernatural, and they're always evil, that's the important thing with M.R. James. He sets them in recognizable surroundings, the surroundings that he, as a rather 
apparently in, in his daily life rather uncomfortably off, uh, complacent, you might say, yeah. middle-class Cambridge Don. He sets him in the settings that he knew, the seaside town, the, the cathedral close, the, um, the country house. They are totally important. One of the reasons the settings are important is because they make it convincing. And, of course, what he ultimately has to tell us isn't at all convincing. The appearance of a Solomonic demon in a French cathedral isn't at all convincing. But he set up that cathedral itself so very brilliantly. He's described it so very brilliantly. And so very economically in that case. I mean, you know, you, we've been there ourselves to the Cathedral of saint bertrand de Command. You, you can spend a long time looking around it, and it is a, a remarkable place. Within a few sentences, M.L. James is, is, you know, he's set up. You know, the, 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 the choir stores, the, um, the old organ, the, the, the scabby reptile hanging on the wall. Which I'd, I'd, something That's I'd very much the word painting, as he calls it. Is really word precise. It's really masterful. Precisely. It? And it's in, yeah. you touch on Albra, and I live in Albra, and, it, and it's a place which is very sort of bucolic in lots of ways, yeah. despite the Dickensian reference. And, yeah. and it's very hard to imagine malevolence, actually, in Albra. And I suppose I wanted to ask you, so when, when you brilliantly do your storytelling, you feel that's really important to, to go through all that detailing and get the setting absolutely right. It leads people on in some way, does it? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it sets it up. It sets a kind of, you know, um, you know, in the way any good and careful writer or filmmaker yeah. would do. You, you, you establish things, and he establishes them brilliantly, and they remain consistent. And, and, and because of that, when the impossible happens... It's perhaps that bit more affecting to the reader or the listener or the viewer um, because you, you've so carefully established the, yeah, no, the I, setting. I, I agree. I think, I think you're right there. And I, I guess for um, you're a Cambridge man, you're, you're very familiar with the world that, 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 that James inhabited, and, um, and it's not always out in the wilderness, is it, that he senses no. fear? It can be in all sorts of different right. settings. I mean, this is what I mean, you know. Uh, the Mornings of the Curious is, is set in a... In a seaside town, a pleasant seaside town you know, um, a slightly off season, it's kind of Easter when they're there, but he, and he, he mentions how quiet it is and there aren't many people around, but it's a you know, it's, it's a an affordable hotel that they're staying in, uh, and, and likewise um, you know, the uh, the other great story of the Suffolk coast is, is A Whistle I'll Come to You, now in that um Actually, he describes again the landscape brilliantly, that golf course, that kind of bleak old golf course at the end of Felixstowe, old Felixstowe, kind of, you know, just near Felixstowe Ferry, uh, which is exactly the same today as it was when, when he visited there, when it had just opened, in fact, about 120 years ago. Um, I don't think it's so much the setting, it's not the physical environment. What, and he does this brilliantly, I swear, as well, it's the weather, it's the, it's the wind and the rain, and the, the, the he describes it so packed. Parkins, the, um, the, the kind of protagonist of Whistle I Come to You, he's, he's setting off having had a rather unsatisfactory day's golf. And he turns around and he, he, it says, bleak and solemn was the view. And there you are, they, you know, this guy's just been playing golf in the middle of winter, middle of December, and he's playing golf in, on the yeah. East Coast. I mean, it, it, it's a mistake. And you know it's not a comfortable winter landscape then, because, you, you know, there's some things uh, that lots of us will find common on a a nice crisp winter's day yeah. with, with a deep blue sky and yeah. it's cloudless and you know there's frost and you know it's, it's things that make us feel seasonable and, and yeah. all of those things. Um, a whistle has a bit more of the open space to it. Those those 
those dream sequences of, of, of Parkin running along the beach trying to escape the thing that's not pursuing him, but he still can't quite escape yeah, it. Yeah. There's a sense there that almost in an open space you are in some cases more vulnerable than you, than you would be in a closed space, tra trapped in with this thing. You can't escape it, there's nowhere to go. I see, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but one thing about the beach is there are these groins and they kind of trap him because, you know, he's got to get over them every few yards and eventually he kind of, or the fella in the dream, hurls himself over the groin, he's lying there crouching and the, the thing comes on him and that's when Parkins wakes up. Um, so, and you see, you know, this is a, a bit of geekiness of which I'm nevertheless quite proud. M.R. James used to stay in exactly that. The, the, the description of the, of um, Burnstoke, as he calls it in the story, uh, which is in fact Felix Stowe. The description in the story is exactly the view that you would get if you were in a bedroom at what's now called Felix Stowe Lodge, which was a ha big house owned by M.R. James's friend Felix Cobbled, who every 31st of December would have house parties and, you know, fellas from Kings would um, come and stay with him and M.R. James was a regular guest. And the, the Parkin, there's what Parkin sees from his hotel room window is exactly what you see from that, where the lodge is in Felix Stowe. And it was, um, it was Felix Cobbled, shortly after he inherited the house in about 1880s, um, he installed the groins. So these groins were, in fact, the, um, the, the, the rather proud achievement of his great friend Felix. They must have talked about these groins quite a lot. And as he was looking out of his windows late at night, you know, after a, a night, you know, these bachelor dons all together, they, you know, probably drink a lot, they tell each other stories, and, you know, he'd be going to bed, he'd see these groins, and, you know, they, they'd be on his mind, the groins. And they seem very innocent, the groins, until you actually think about them. And, um, you know, th th they're odd, aren't they? Groins are really odd things, particularly the w when they get worn away, and you just see there's almost like kind of stone hen sort of things sticking out. That's brilliant, Robert. I mean, because you, you do, I, I was conscious that, that as you spoke, that I do look at those things and they're, they're weird and twisted and yeah. malevolent in their way. And I grew up in East Anglia, so they feel entirely familiar. Yeah. But when you point that out, actually, they're, they're very eerie structures. I really and I know that you've studied the East Anglian landscape in relation to James and, and fear, really. So you think it's yeah. a place that lends itself to well, that? Well, I don't, I, you know, I, I, I just think that he, he, such was his imagination that, um, you know, he, he could, and such was his familiarity with the East Anglian coast in particular. And so the two stories we've talked about. Um, another one that I'd like to, I, I like to pair with, um, I wish I'd come to my ideas, is, is Rats. Mm. with Rats. Yes. Yes. Very, yes. Which is a brilliant story, I think very short a place where the road dips and rises again and some blasted heath somewhere with the gorse I'm always oh, there yeah. you are yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. yeah. That, yeah 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 um, so yeah you know he, he he saw the possibilities in that kind of landscape but he also saw the possibilities in other landscapes that you wouldn't naturally think of as or, or settings that you wouldn't naturally think of as as kind of containing um, yeah. The uncanny. Yes, because there's a sense of, of some, uh, sometimes it is that the familiar, yeah. where the malevolence intrudes yeah. in, in the most unex well, unexpected important. way. Yes. He was often asked about his kind of credo of the, the ghost story and so on, and he, he got the impression he, he wasn't a theorist, was Emma James. He kind of, you know, he just liked to get on with it. And, um, but he said, two ingredients most valuable in the concocting of a ghost story are to me the atmosphere and the nicely managed crescendo. 
Let us then be introduced to the actors in a placid way. Let us see them going about their ordinary business, undisturbed by forebodings, pleased with their surroundings. And into this calm environment, let the ominous thing put its head, unobtrusively at first, and then more insistently until it holds the stage. And I think that's what I'm talking about, that the setting is important as a... The setting, you, you don't want to give it away, you know, at the beginning. And, and he doesn't, he very rarely does. In James's stories, it's often, these things happen to the sceptics. How key is that? Th that adds something, along with the setting, that must add something to how powerful the, um, the, the payoffs, uh, for want of a better word, in James's story are. Yeah. Well, you know, the, 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 the classic sceptic is, is Professor Parkins, who is the, the, prefer, the professor of ontography, which is a kind of invented uh, academic discipline, but, you know, it, it, it's rationalist and materialist and so on. Yeah. You know, he's, M. R. James once famously, well, I say famously, I've never been able to actually retrace the quotation, but I'm told, I, I remember he did once say, um, I believe in more than I can see, uh, which is, you know, a, I think what a lot of Christians would say, and he, and he was a, a devout Christian. So the, the world he sets, the physical world he sets, is a very familiar one, but the, the kind of, the world of belief, or the, the, the world of the, the I, I'm not going to use the word spiritual, but the kind of the, 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 the world of spirits, perhaps, um, is not the world that he inhabits. It's different. It's the medieval world that he knew very well. It's the world of folklore that he knew very well. Um, so, for instance, the ash tree is about... I mean, he's, the, the writer of the ash tree, Emma James, has asked himself, what if he's, he's been reading about the witch trials and he's reading about all these accusations against women, some of them who even admitted it themselves and so on, all the apparent evidence of, you know, cattle dying unexpectedly and, and so on, and he says, what if, in fact, that it, the premise of the story is, what if, that's tr what if there's something behind that? What if there is something behind the accusations of witchcraft? And that's what the whole story is about. He then writes a story in which, in fact, that it seems by the end, although he, he's not going to doctrinaire about it, he doesn't come down and say this is so, but it seems that, in fact, there was considerable substance to the accusations put against Mrs. Mothersole, and that from beyond the grave, she has used her magical, malevolent powers to kind of, you know, to get her idea of justice. He believed in more than he could see. He, he wasn't a materialist entirely, a, a kind of a, 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 he wasn't a scientific character particularly. But he didn't necessarily believe that, there were witch, that the witch trials were based on anything. He didn't believe that if you build this why this sea, you'd conjure up a demon. That's what, he didn't believe in his own ghost stories. You know, I, I don't think he was, he's not presenting a a world view there. I, I don't think he's like H.P. Lovecraft, who I think perhaps is kind of, even if metaphorically suggesting that, you know, there's terrible, monstrous chaos out there against which we're, we're hopeless. But um, I think for the purposes of entertainment, he, he asked himself these questions. What if, so he's everywhere, you know, all over Cambridge, all over Suffolk, Berries and Edmonds, he grew up near Berries and Edmonds, everywhere he'd see the three crowns. And he must have thought, what what is that? What is the three crowns? And there, there is no easy to discover answer to that. So he made up a wonderful story that, in his, in his words, was consistent with the rules of folklore. There's something, and I think it's common to my experience of place and landscape as well, yeah. this idea that history is always surfacing. 
Um, and because of his academic career, he was able to do that brilliantly and convincingly. Um, but I, I feel it quite keenly when I'm experiencing these places that, yeah. that just below the surface, literally, if you take a whistle and the, the Templar's preceptory, yeah. literally just below the surface, there's something lurking. Oh, yeah. There was something in history that all we need to do is discover it accidentally and, and it surfaces before us. That, that must have been key for him and, and I think it's key for me. And key for him from a very young age, key for him not only as a writer of ghost stories, which is very much a sideline, but as a, as, a, as a scholar of the medieval world and the late Christian world as well. So, yeah, absolutely. He, he was um, the resonance of the past, the, 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 the belief that the, the past has something to say to the present, but also, you know, exists contemporaneously with the present as well, was absolutely defined his whole the whole way he saw the world I think yeah so picking up on that robot because we've been entirely remiss in not describing where we are yeah yes exactly. so so yeah. tell us where we are and, and this is the place that you, that you use for yourself. yeah it is so th th we're in a 12th century uh, it's called the leper chapel in Cambridge the chapel of St Mary Magdalene these weird faces look at these 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 would have looked down um, nearly a thousand years ago upon people suffering from leprosy who had been worshipping here. So this was a chapel connected to a hospital for lepers, which was itself connected to a larger kind of um, monastic complex, Barnwell Priory. And yeah, so I, I perform here. And you know, as you can imagine, when, it, when it's a bit cold and it's dark outside and I've got my candles lit and so on, th th this place, of course, is 100 years younger than Hemingford Grey Manor. So yes. it's, it's, you know, but again, it's, yeah. you get the similar sense of antiquity. In a way, I don't want um, you to feel you have to betray your art because it, it, what you do is so, is so effective. But, but you must study people's reactions, the audience reactions to fear and see things that, what well, you described the candlelight and you, you yeah. do, do something terrific with the flickering of your yeah. finger. Well, I like to be able to sense a reaction from them. And you know, there, there are many parts where one hopes for laughter and doesn't often get it. Um, but no, I, I tend, to, I, I, even though it may seem as I'm looking at you, I'm actually, my focus is on the, the inside of my glasses. I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm kind of looking at an imaginary figure. So I, I kind of, you know. And we, we, we'd talked earlier, Ian and I, about the, this idea of the numinous, mm. that, the, that sometimes the most, that the things we fear most are the things we cannot see, the things mm. we only feel. Mm. And James's stories and, and, and other writing as well has sometimes has a, a lot of that. You mm. don't the reveal is not always sometimes it doesn't happen at all. No. And and and, and some and, and a lot of times it's very, very subtle. He yeah. he never his characters never see things full on in many yeah, cases. It's, it's only a hand yes. or, or it's only an impression. Yeah. How, how much of that, to, to our experience of fear, do you think is is important? It's the numinous and not something so obvious or tangible. Well, certainly the kind of the, the, the slow, steady, sensory build-up of unease is, is kind of very much part of his his method, and the method of any successful writer of the supernatural. I think when you say numinous, I, I think of numinous as connoting a kind of a religious feeling that, that can't be seen or touched, yeah, or kind of, you know, somehow mystical. And I don't think Emma James does have that. 
Um, you know, he, uh, he, 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 as I say, he did believe in more than he could see, but I don't think that that is necessarily the theme of his, his fiction. Um, so you, you, you get this eeriness, this, this kind of uh, unseen, the scarcely sense. I mean, it's best described perhaps in, the, um, in A Warning to the Curious, where Paxton, when he first becomes aware that something is, is on his back, having dug up the crown, he says, at first I saw him only with the corner of my eye, and he was never there, and I looked straight at him. And this, the thing's seen from the corner of the eye. That's exactly it. And in, in, in Canon and Abbott's scrapbook, it, it's mo mostly orally. Kind of, he hears things. First he hears kind of... Well, it, it says, as, as, as kind of the light goes down, he, he says the, um, the, the sense of hearing is quickened. I, I can't remember now. I have to be in flow to kind of get the exact words right. But he, the, the, he says the, the soft footsteps and the, the distant muttering voices became more prominent. And then he hears... What he describes as a thin metallic laugh. Now, I, I'd love to be able to do a metallic laugh. <laughs> thin or thick, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's a very yeah. effective otherworldly oh, phrase. It's a brilliant it? phrase, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. 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 And, and that introduces a whole other thing about the things that, that make a. It's literally the bump in the night, it's the noise yeah. that is inexplicable. Yeah. Otherworldly, as you say, and there's quite a lot of that in James's fiction. Is it, the the things he takes for rats on the bed in yes. in a whistle, um, and 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 there are a few moments where it's just noise yeah. and and nothing else, nothing yeah. visible or tangible, or even silence. And then the silence mm. is broken. You know, mm. um, you know in, think think of the mist that comes down towards the end of Warning to the Curious. It's clearly some supernatural event happening because he says they're running along the beach. They can't see anything clearly, but the sun is still high up in the sky. You know, somehow the senses are veiled. Now, in a, in a writer like Arthur Macken, you'll have the veil will be ripped aside, perhaps temporarily, and one will see not only horror, but one will see mystical truths, perhaps. I'm thinking of, there's a particular story called N. In, and it, for him, I think the landscape was numinous. He, he wrote a, a novel called The Hill of Dreams, which is about him. He grew up in Wales, in South Wales. Uh, and he used to, he was the son, like Emma James, the son of a vicar, and he used to kind of wander the, the landscape of Wales. Um, lots of writers in the 1890s wrote about Pan, this kind of spirit of nature and so on, the, 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 almost a deifying nature in a way. No, I, and I think, I think it was very good what you said, and, and, and we had been discussing earlier, or I had been saying that the natural world isn't filled with the same terrors that would be filled with stumbling across the curious man-made artifact in the landscape that, that it sort of embodies the terror yes. in some way. Well, it is for our James that's the case, but then are you familiar with The Willows by Algernon Blackwood? I mean, that, that's an example I was, I was thinking of where it is the landscape, it's, it's the natural world, which is somehow, and again, in a brilliantly intangible way, that makes it all the more terrifying. So I wanted to say this to you then, Robert, really, because famously, whenever people talk about M.R. James... Uh, you could correct me if I'm wrong. He didn't really believe in ghosts. Yeah. And I wondered what your view was and what... what whether I believe in ghosts or not. It's funny that, you know, the, the fate of Professor Parkins prevents me from saying absolutely I don't believe in ghosts. <laughs> 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 so perhaps he has that he does. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, Emma James said he's prepared to keep an open mind. I suppose I am, but it's, I, 
Yes, well, there we are. You see, well, what I do believe in is what, what you hinted at before, the, 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 the past can resonate into the present. Um, things can be, ha places can be haunted um, by the past, absolutely. Uh, I, 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 I firmly believe in that. Uh, what causes me fear? Um, well, apart from obvious things like spiders and so on, it, uh, what causes me kind of... Yes, I'll, I'll tell you. So, yes, a few years ago, I, um, there was a, there's an artist, she lives in Grantchester, just outside Cambridge, and she put up on a, I didn't know her beforehand, but she put up on a, a kind of internet mailing list. She said she was doing a, a kind of conceptual artwork, and it was between two blue moons, the two moons at the beginning and end of the same calendar month. She was going to walk a circuit around the city of Cambridge, basically around the villages and so, you know, she worked it out that so there'd be 30 different walks each night. And she, want, and she was going to sleep outdoors for all of that time. And she wanted people at these various stopping-off points around Cambridge to put her up for the night and take a nocturnal walk with her. And so I, I, I thought this sounded great. So I, I was renting a little cottage in an orchard at the time. I thought she can sleep in my orchard and we'll go for a walk in the woods or these woods nearby in which I would never have dared to walk on my own at night and still wouldn't now. But because this old woman was with me, we went out in the, at midnight and walked through these woods. And sure, we saw the fabled white stag of Eversden. Kind of amazing. This, this, this yeah. albino, it wasn't a stag, it was a hind, kind of in the distance. It was a very, very eerie walk. Uh, and I would not, I, I, I was given courage by her presence, the fact that I had someone with me. But um, th yes, no, so being out so in somewhere I don't know late at night would terrify me. Whether that is supernatural fear or not, I'm not sure. Well, we're back, we're back out in the open area and we're by this um, really sort of sluggish Fenland river and, um, and I, I really enjoyed talking to um, Robert at the, at the leper chaplain hearing his thoughts on fear and what makes us afraid of things. Yeah, I think we, uh, we bombarded him with a thousand fan questions because we're huge admirers of his work and enjoy the performance. But it was really illuminating for the things we'd been thinking about fear. And it's, and it's really interesting being out here amongst the horses on the edge of the fens by the landscape. And, and you feel, I, I feel differently about it. It's a landscape that features in many of M.R. James' best stories. And suddenly you think of the words that, that, that you said and that Robert said about fear being something almost in the land that, that bubbles up. I, I, I love that notion. It was very powerful. Yeah, and some of that was related to history surfacing. And so all, all the things we've talked about today and, and some of the things we've explored about different landscapes and environments affecting us in different ways, whether it's just the nature of the landscape itself, it, its wideness, its darkness, its bleakness, or, a, or an experience that happened to us in a particular type of place which then colours our view of, of that place going forward, um, or whether it is um, simply this fear of the unknown. Is there something 
out there that's watching me? Is there something that unsettles us or gives us a feeling of melancholy or, or sadness? Yeah, that was really nice to think about that. And, and the way that that, um, it's almost like a, we can return to this subject time and time again because fear and what instills it in us and the way that the landscape instigates that and our, our worries about what we don't understand are universal and it's something you, mm. you could you could take anybody to an audience of his stories and bring anybody to discuss this subject and have something to offer and H.P. Lovecraft said this the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown I think we must all know the landscapes are they by Burkitt Foster or somewhat earlier which in the form of woodcuts decorate the volumes of poetry that lay on the drawing room tables of our fathers and grandfathers. I confess myself an admirer of them, and especially of those which show the peasant leaning over a gate in a hedge and surveying at the bottom of a downward slope the village church spire embosomed amid venerable trees and a fertile plain intersected by hedgerows and bounded by distant hills, behind which the orb of day is sinking, or it may be rising, amid level clouds, illumined by his dying or nascent ray. Well, the expressions employed here are, are those which seem appropriate to the picture I have in mind, and were there the opportunity, I would try to work in the vale, the grove, the cot, and the flood. Anyhow, they are beautiful to me, these landscapes, and it was just such a one that I was now surveying. It might have come straight out of gems of sacred song selected by a lady and given as a birthday present to Eleanor Phillips in 1852 by her attached friend Millicent Graves. All at once I turned as if I'd been stung. A thrilled into my right ear and pierced my head a note of incredible sharpness, like the shriek of a bat only ten times intensified, the kind of thing that makes one wonder if something is not given away in one's brain. I held my breath and covered my ear and shivered. Something in the circulation, another minute or two I thought and I return home, but I must fix the view a little more firmly in my mind. Only when I turned to it again, the taste was gone out of it. The sun was down behind the hill and the light was off the fields. And when the clock bell in the church tower struck seven, I thought no longer of kind, mellow evening hours of rest and scents of flowers and woods on evening air and of how someone on a farm a mile or two off would be saying, how clear Betton Bell sounds tonight after the rain. But instead, images came to me of dusty beams and creeping spiders and savage owls up in the tower and forgotten graves and their ugly contents below and of flying time on all it had taken out of my life. And just then into my left ear, close as if lips had been put within an inch of my head, the frightful scream came thrilling again. There was no mistake possible now. It was from outside. With no language but a cry was the thought that flashed into my mind. Hideous it was beyond anything I'd heard or have heard since, but I could read no emotion in it and doubted if I could read any intelligence. All its effect was to take away every vestige, every possibility of enjoyment, and make this no place to stay in one moment more. Of course, there was nothing to be seen, 
but it was conveyed that if I waited, the thing would pass me again on its aimless, endless beat, and I could not bear the notion of a third repetition. I hurried back to the lane and down the hill, but when I came to the arch in the wall, I stopped. Could I be short of my way among those dank alleyways, which would be danker and darker now? No. I confessed to myself that I was afraid. So jarred were all my nerves with the cry on the hill that I really felt I could not afford to be startled even by a little bird in a bush or a rabbit. I followed the road which followed the wall, and I was not sorry when I came to the gate and the lodge and described Philipson coming up towards it from the direction of the village. <laughs>